This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to this week's Bunker Roundtable. I'm your host, Alex Andreu. On the show this week, latest fatalities from the culture war front, government ethics, international law, human rights, the Good Friday Agreement, Britain's global standing, press independence, all dead or missing. Also, on the week the Rail Workers' Union begins industrial action, is this conflict all real or partly confected? And finally, as Microsoft withdraws Internet Explorer, we reminisce about the early days of browsing. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Just a reminder that the fifth episode of our new podcast, Origin Story, is out now. On this week's edition, Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky take a deep dive into the world of woke. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's meet today's esteemed panel. First up, we have journalist and author Marie Leconte. Hello, Marie. Hello. Marie, the second round of France's legislative elections were held on Sunday. Uh, Macron's ensemble lost its majority, as expected, falling 44 short of the 289 MPs it needed. Um, although Mélenchon's left-wing alliance, NUP, did not go as well as some of the more optimistic forecasts thought, taking 131 seats. Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National went from 8 MPs to 89. Yikes. Um, where does Macron turn now? Mélenchon has already ruled out a coalition. Le Pen would, I presume, be unpalatable. Is a possible grand coalition with a centre-right Republicans possible? It, well, I mean, currently it does feel like the most likely option, even though there's obviously quite a lot of bad blood between the traditional right and uh, Macron's party. It, it sort of feels like the only, yeah, only the the, the only possible option. Mm. And I think the right, actually, much as they dislike Macron, would actually probably quite like a slice of the power. And obviously the left, like, and, you know, so like Newt has said that they do not want to have a coalition with Macron. But even then, I think the cynical view to take as well, and I think that's the one a lot of French journalists are taking, is that it is not clear how long Newt will last as a coalition. Because mm. if there's one thing left-wing politicians that want to do is uh, is to just scream at each other and disband whenever they can. So as you know, so no one's <laughs> predicting Newt to last Politicians anyway. everywhere, I think, Marie. Yes. So I think that, you know, you could not, were I Macron's advisor, I'm not sure I would I would recommend, you know, forming an alliance with a party that's not really a party and that will almost certainly not remain a party for much longer. Might he try and run a minority government? Does that happen in French politics, sort of chipping off allies from each bloc, depending on the piece of legislation he's trying to pass? Um, so that is a bit I have to say I'm not an expert on, but I mean he could. But then again, you know who who else really? If you look at the uh, National Assembly as it is, who apart from again the traditional right would really be willing to do that? Because again, everyone who's been I think elected, not just on the left, but you know the left under Mélenchon, 
is clearly way more to the left, you know, than than the centre. So, so again, you know, he, I, I guess he could in theory do that, but but you know, who who would he really? Um, I don't know if you get help from passing like a piece of legislation on um, renewables. He could try and peel off the ecologist part of the noop block and stuff like that. I, I I don't know because I don't I don't think I've ever experienced a minority government in France in the years I've been paying attention to them. Um, can a president have a go at a coalition or a minority government if it turns out to be as unstable? Can he call another election or can the legislature call another election? Uh, he absolutely can. So the last president to do that, which is actually one of my first uh, political memories, uh, Jacques Chirac did it in, I think, 97, definitely in the late 90s, uh, because he did not like his small majority. So, you know, as we call it now, he did a Theresa May um, and he then lost his majority <laughs> <laughs> um, and had to cohabitate, as we call it, uh, in France with the left prime minister because uh, the National Assembly had gone to the left. Very funny. I mean, just a very funny thing to happen. Um, so again, I think that because that's what happened the last time, I'm not convinced that's something he would go for. But also I think the problem is that, you know, En Marche or, you know, whatever he calls him, uh, the party these days, is basically just him. And there's clearly not really a successor or anything. We know he can't run next time anyway. So mm-hmm. I'm not, I can't really see, I think, another local elections where... But, so I can't see another sort of like parliamentary elections where he gets more seats anyway. Mm. So, so yes, technically, that is something he can do. He is allowed to do as the president of France. I just don't see why he would do it. Mm. Also with us, writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hello, Justin. Hello, Alex. Justin, you've been following the January 6th capital invasion hearings in Congress like a teenage Biden groupie. Um, what were the key takeaways of week two? I'm here with my Liz Cheney screensaver. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been gripping stuff. Um, star takeout that you may have seen last week, it was Judge Michael Luttig. Uh, it's a very old, very venerable figure from the, interestingly, quite far to the right of American politics. I mean, and his testimony was interesting because of who he was. Um, I think they've gone, particularly under Cheney, they've gone to great lengths to make this appear as bipartisan as possible. They were stymied at very a lot of levels like that. But in terms of where they've been drawing the witnesses from, they've been very, very careful not to make this just look like a shooting gallery full of Democrats. Now, he was really sort of a conservative's conservative. Mm. He was a former uh, federal appeals court judge. He was on George Bush's shortlist for the Supreme Court, came very close to a position there. And what was sort of notable about his testimony, he spoke in this incredibly untelevisual way. Mm. You know, when everything sort of very felt, slow and very deliberate, slow. wasn't well, he? Very slow, very clearly and very precisely, to the point where a lot of this sort of stuff was going around going, Oh, I think he's got a speech impediment, or has he had a stroke, or is he ill? And he then went on Twitter and gave this very, very long thread with lots of it sort of in ellipsis and parenthesis to slow it down. And we're going, <laughs> No, nothing's wrong with me. I was just making an incredibly important point, which you all need to pay attention to. And I think he correctly assumed this was actually the best way to get it across. And, you know, at the heart of his line, he said, on January 6th, we came as close as we can to what he termed a revolution within a constitutional crisis in America. And he said, you know, this is the severe gravity of this situation. And I think he probably landed on quite a good way of getting that across. Mm. So... Big up the judge. Is there is there a big blockbuster witness coming up this week? Uh, this week's hearings have been slightly shuffled around. One of the days has been cancelled, and I think last I checked has been bumped over to oh, next right, week. Right. But um, with the other fourth hearing um, is going to cover how Trump, the uh, cor- 
corruptly pressured state legislators and election officials to change the results. Key witnesses to look out for Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffsenberger and former Georgia Voting System Implementation Manager Gabriel Sterling. Mm. Now, this links to another really interesting story that's rumbling along in the background, but is worth keeping an eye on, which is there was a ruling in a Delaware court last week that Dominion Voting Systems, remember they make mm. the machines mm. that administers yeah, yeah. the vote, can go after the Newsmax news channel for $1.6 billion for defamation. Now, defamation system suits in America are difficult to win. Uh, most analysis I've seen on this is it's about as close to a slam dunk as you can get because oh, wow. Newsmax effectively went out saying for months that Dominion was some insane conspiracy front. And they're like, no, we're a massive company and this is our business. So, uh, And we have lawyers. I think milkshakes will be drunk. Speaking of lawyers, a warm welcome back to our final special guest, law and policy commentator, David Allen Green. Hello, David. Welcome to the bunker again. Hiya. David, we will discuss in excruciating detail, I assure you, the government's deportation difficulties, code quandaries and protocol peccadilloes in a bit. But on a more general note, what is the effect of having an attorney general ahead of the country's legal profession that simply never stands up for the profession? Well, she ain't head of the legal profession. She's head of the barristers who are a sort of minority. The, the true lawyers, obviously, are, the, are solicitors. And she isn't the head. <laughs> she isn't our head. You know, we're going to blame the bar for her. We're going to get complaints. Uh, it is a strange <laughs> position, the position of Attorney General, uh, because it is quasi-legal, quasi-political. And the fact that it's never really caused this much problem before is because most of its holders have realised that they can't push the job too far. They can't be too political, but they also can't be wholly uh, lawyeristic. So we've never had these sort of problems to this extent. We have had some problems from time to time, but the current document does not seem to care for the balancing exercise between the legal and the political side of the job and is jumping up and down on the political side of the seesaw. And as a, mm. as a consequence, the, the post is suffering and a great deal of disrepute now for the Attorney General's position, which is very unfortunate. Oh, so you think the position in general is suffering damage? I think it is. I think it's been politicised in the same way uh, other roles within the government have been politicised by people who mm. care nothing for constitutionalism constitutionalism meaning of course a sense that there are political rules and principles which are which should be adhered to beyond personal or partisan advantage but there's no sense of that with the current government. David in your professional dealings have you found lawyers to be particularly lefty or exceptionally woke? Uh, not really uh, I don't think it is a particularly lefty or right-wing profession but what you do do as a lawyer in your, if you're engaged with certain types of work is work which involves the public interest like for example making sure that the legal system works for asylum seekers and so on and hmm. so the argument seems to be that it, it is inherent in the work which some lawyers do which makes them lefty, not their personal opinions. Now, that's worrying mm, because that mm. means that certain public interest work is now seen as a party's, party of an exercise. 
Now, number 10 heads for another week of confrontation and controversy. Since the PM survived a vote of confidence, the utterly predictable failure of the Rwanda flights policy has been re-engineered into a culture war with Europe. The resignation of a second ethics advisor was brushed aside as an irrelevance. The UK is now under infringement proceedings by the EU after proposing legislation that will breach an international treaty. This government signed only two years ago, and to top it all, a time story about Johnson trying to hire his then-mistress Carrie just disappeared without reason. A newspaper of records, provided you get the right edition. And yet it feels like nothing is sticking to Johnson. But with two by-elections on Thursday, could the PM finally face a political reckoning? David, Last week, the failure of the Rwanda flights policy was quickly turned into a culture war in Europe after the European Court of Human Rights intervention. Was this number 10's intention all along, do you think? Uh, I think they would politicise it if they could. And whichever way it went, it was going to be politicised. So I don't think there's anything which could have been undone to avoid this being turned into something of propaganda value for for the government or or generally or the Home Office in particular. But the way it turned out is actually quite odd. Very quickly, the sequence of events is that the government proposed this as a policy. The relevant civil servant, senior civil servant, insisted on the minister signing this off with what's called a ministerial determination because it just did not make any sense internally. It didn't add up. And so the civil servant said, well, that's a very brave decision, Minister. Uh, If you want to go ahead with that, you've got to order me to do it. (laughs) And that is what happened. That is how weak the policy rationale is uh, of this policy. There's a ministerial determination in place. Then the flights were organised. There's a legal challenge. The legal challenge is of two types. There's a challenge to the actual policy itself. Uh Uh-huh. And then there are challenges to particular individuals who are facing uh, deportation. This is where it gets slightly more complicated. When we look at the challenge to the very policy itself, that is a very difficult legal challenge to bring in any Mm -hmm. circumstances because the courts do just do not want to get involved in overturning policy. They'll look at individual cases, but they don't like interrupting policy in progress. So there is this challenge. It can't be heard until July. So the full challenge to this policy as being so unreasonable, no reasonable government would adopt it and being impossible to do in accordance with human rights, it doesn't come down to individual cases. The whole policy is unlawful. That challenge isn't until July. So the question then becomes, what should the court do before July when the flights are taking place in June? There is an obvious problem there. And so the court was asked to grant an injunction, an order of the court to stop the policy happening just until the hearing next month. Yeah. You would think that the Home Office, being sensible, uh would want to actually say, (laughs) fine, we will undertake not to deport anybody until the hearing in July. But they refused that. And so it went to a judge. The judge had to make a decision on whose convenience was affected. The test for an injunction in these circumstances comes down to what's called the balance of convenience. It's an old, famous legal test for an an injunction like this. The government argued that uh, 
there is a public interest in putting this policy. You've got to deal with these dreadful gangs taking vulnerable people over the the, the, the North Sea and over the English Channel, somehow by deporting those same vulnerable people to Rwanda. Doesn't make sense. It's like Chewbacca coming from Endor, but that's the government's argument. <laughs> uh, the people challenging the decision said, well, a month doesn't really matter. The judge, for reasons which I do not really understand, said that the balance of convenience lay with the government being able to carry on the business of policy. Yes. I thought that was extraordinary, especially given the ministerial direction. But that was the decision of the first instance judge. That then was challenged at the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal said we can only only overturn the first judge if the judge has made it so woefully wrong, and they declined to do so. And then the Supreme Court declined to do so. So there were no interfering judges in England on the policy. They all said, we can wait, you carry on, we've got a hearing in July. Mm. If the government was setting up English judges for the four, they failed, because none of the English judges took the bait. Then some clever lawyers went off to Strasbourg, where the European Court of Human Rights sits, and got the European Court of Human Rights to issue a, not quite an injunction, it's an interim order of some kind, but it's not an injunction, it's a very strange legal thing, which said, for those on the flights which haven't been already been removed, can you just wait on until July? Yeah, and by that point, it was only three of them, I understand, that this applied. Because on the parallel, and I know this must be really boring for non-lawyers listening and even for the lawyers listening, because uh, in the meantime, the other types of actions, which are based on a case-by-case basis, had successfully yeah. removed almost all of the people from the plane anyway. Yeah. So it was a very complicated legal action. It didn't necessarily have to end this way. At each stage, the judges could have jumped a different way. But given that the full hearing of, on the policy of, of, of the flights is in July, there is no good reason why the Home Office had to force this through before July. The only possible reason is not a good reason, and that's performative cruelty. Yeah. And and uh, I have to say, having seen the summary of the ECHR's um, reasoning, it seemed to me quite convincing that uh, the government having agreed it would fly people back if the policy was then found to be unlawful, but it didn't have any means of compelling Rwanda to send people back because apparently the memorandum of understanding with Rwanda is not legally binding. So they were promising to bring well, people daft, back. The, the daft thing is, is that the government couldn't even agree that because that's not in the gift of the government or the yeah. British government could actually offer were its, quote, best endeavours to try and get somebody to come back. Yeah. So they couldn't yeah. even undertake to return people. Let's toss that on the pile of difficult to understand for now. Um, Marie Johnson lost a second ethics advisor last Wednesday. I shall skip the obvious Lady Bracknell quotes. I'm not <laughs> sure the PM is familiar with the importance of being earnest. Um, Lord Guite said the PM forced him into an impossible and odious position. I mean, in civil servant language, that now, is the is equivalent. That's just someone screaming for Isn't two it? hours it's straight. It's Sigourney yeah. Weaver in an exoskeletal <laughs> loader going, get away from her, you bitch. Um, what's going on here? How bad is this look for the government? Um, 
God, I, I swear, and this is absolutely not to comment on the podcast, but instead the political situation, I swear every time I come into this studio, <laughs> you ask me that exact question. Like, there's always something that's happened in the week that's like, and how bad is this? And it's like, I don't know, man. Like, stop asking me. Um, but no, more seriously, I mean, it, it's bad and it isn't um, in that I think there'd been a bit of a will he, won't he about Lord Guide for quite a long time now. It kind of felt like he was pitrolling for his own resignation for quite a long time. And also, you know, it felt kind of weird because it was over some, was it like steel tariff, steel, I've got this terrible condition, which is that I fall asleep if someone talks about trade. Um, so I don't actually remember exactly what it's about. But again, you know, the point was, it was about something that was quite technical uh, and quite complex, which is why, again, quite a lot of people said, oh, okay, so it's not, you know, the, the parties or any of the weird behavior in number 10, it's actually something quite technical. So it is bad, but I think it's not nearly as bad as it could have been. Yeah, it was the parties there, wasn't it? In that Lord Guide said that the parties are what brought me to the brink. Yeah. But I thought, okay, let's give this one more go. Mm. And, then, and then a week later. Two days <laughs> later, you ask me whether you can break the code again. So um, uh, the, the general line of defense from Johnson loyalists was that people outside Westminster just don't care about this kind of stuff. That, that is true, isn't it? So it is true, but I don't, I'm not convinced that's really the way to run politics. And that's something I've, I've I'm pretty sure I've written about a million times now. Um, I think the problem is that the public does not care about about 98% of what happens in Westminster. So you can't just do everything, see everything in Westminster through the lens of will people care, will they not care? Mm. So I think that that doesn't quite work. It's, you know, it's perhaps true and fair to deploy in an election. Like during a campaign, I think it's fair to say actually occasionally, oh, you know, it's fine. The public missed that or they're not going to care about that Mm. one day or that one line of news. I think in terms of day to day politics, sure, you know, it's technically technically correct. But also that's, yeah, again, that should not even be part of the discussion, really. It's like a compost heap, isn't it? You can toss all sorts of stuff on there and people won't notice the individual items, but they will notice the general stench, as it were, that (laughs) emanates from it. Um, David... Opening another very short can here, the government unveiled its bill on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, In your view, will this legislation breach the UK's treaty with the EU? Um, Try to be brief about the reasons. I know it's difficult. Um, so I try to be brief, but sometimes constitutional law is just so exciting. <laughs> but yes, the government has introduced legislation which will enable ministers to unilaterally disapply parts of the Northern Irish Protocol. Mm. You may think this is contrary to the idea of an agreement, which can usually only be varied by agreement. But no, they're going in and they're saying almost the entire Northern Irish Protocol can be changed by a ministerial regulation. It's it, it's quite an extraordinary piece of legislation. And there's an argument that even introducing it is a breach of international law. But if it does come into uh, law, and it is relied on, it would certainly be breaching international law because you should not be able to change an international agreement in such a unilateral way. It just is not something which makes any sense. So the the central thrust is that all these changes um, are because they're making them because they're necessary. Yes. They did bring in a bill, if you remember, the Internal Markets Bill, which they openly and expressly said in the House of Commons was a breach of international law. Only a small one, but a breach. All right, this new bill goes far further than the one which was yep. introduced. And their legal cover is the doctrine of necessity. 
it exists only for the reason of telling backbenchers that they have got legal advice that it is okay. The defence of necessity has no other substance to it whatsoever other than that political convenience. Let, let's put that on the pile of things that are impossible to understand that's yeah. building up. Justin, there, there is the mythology that none of this sticks to Johnson, but his poor poll performance of late points a different way. What is the truth? Or, or are both those things happening at the same time? Like it would be even worse for someone that wasn't Johnson. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I've got sort of half-formed theory on that sort uh-huh. of conundrum with Johnson. I mean, We love them, half-formed <laughs> well, well, theories. I sort of think this stuff isn't sticking because partly I think people like us are very bad at understanding where we are at the moment because we're looking at some level for consistency. So your half-formed theories, it's my fault. It's all of that. Yes. Fault, Alex. We'll all you know, it's you specifically. <laughs> I mean, my theory is that it's your fault specifically. <laughs> okay. we'll, all, we'll all shoulder all right, that. All right. But I think if you're broadly on the liberal left, you tend to believe not just in ideology, but that people are basically rational actors, mm. you know, material factors, that sort of thing. And they can be encouraged to be better and they can be, you know, prodded and nudged and sort of behave in a certain way. So I even find myself, no, I would never support Johnson. I find myself sort of constantly thinking, what's his motivation? What's he doing here? What, how can he be incentivized to be better? What's the 4D chess that mm. this stuff is going on? And I think... The analysis we rarely advance for someone like him, and I think probably most of the government at the moment, is that it's just purely about power. And I think in that sense, then, you sort of say, well, none of this stuff seems to stick to him. Because I don't know if on some level, people who are less interested in politics aren't looking for those kind of complicated theories. Yeah, maybe. And they just pick up on that on a kind of subliminal level. Almost. I mean, the, the number 10 has named this Wedge Week last week. And it is perceived to have been a success in that, you know, nobody's really talking about the fact that the PM parted with tens of thousands of care home residents died or that he lied to Parliament or that 40% of his party have no confidence in him or even that the economy is down the toilet. So the temptation will be to do much more of this. And they seem to be using the strikes as this week's wedge issue. Is there a danger it could backfire? Is there a danger that if they reach for that sort of thing all the time, the public will actually begin to lose patience with them and see them as constantly squabbling. I think there is. I think there's a real danger there. It's, I think it's the downside of both a very long period in office and also having had a huge majority. And there's been a very clear attempt by MPs this week to portray this as, you know, Labour's strikes. They've been explicitly saying that on Twitter. I suspect it resonates to a degree with a much older section of their voting base. But I really wonder how much life this gambit has in it. Because I mean, if you're younger than, say, 50... I don't think there's a collective folk memory of industri- of that sort of industrial reference yeah. point of like, you know, labour equals strikes equals chaos. So I would actually think that there's a risk that the more they talk about it and suggest that there is political blame to be apportioned, the obvious answer that comes back from the public is, OK, well, we'll apportion that blame to you, given that you're in power. Mm. Hmm. 
I, I think the problem the Conservatives are going to have, and I'm slightly nicking that point from uh, Rob Colville, who partly wrote the Tory manifesto, so very much a Conservative supporter and voter, um, but who said that, you know, it, it is starting to look a bit like avoidance because the problem is you can have as many wedge weeks as you want to kind of culture wars, issues, etc. If, you know, if people are doing broadly fine in their day-to-day life, I think that is how, you know, you do create a wedge and, you, you know, and you get people to think, actually, yeah, these are the guys on my side on the values that matter to me, etc., etc., if, you know, if there's inflation the way there is in a cost of living crisis uh, that we have at the moment and you've got a government kind of fiddling around with, you know, whatever and, you know, each new week brings a new topic to mm, be angry mm. about. I I suspect that there will be anger after a while of people going, hang on, I can't pay my bills. You yeah. know, I can't, again, you know, fine, I can't take the train because there's a strike. I can't even afford the train yeah. anymore. Like, Can you stop tinkering with the edges or kind of like talking about random stuff? So I, I've decided to start calling it the um, procrastination madness government. Yeah. So the- basically people will say everything's going to hell and you're in charge. And that will be the, the mm. end of that. And yet, particular syllogism. Again, like kind of like a government, you know, the equivalent of being a student and being like, okay, the reason why I'm not writing this essay is definitely because my desk is in the wrong place. I'm drinking the wrong coffee. I need to make my bed. Like they're just doing other stuff to avoid it. That's what it looks like, at least avoid dealing with the one big problem. Okay, two quick things to wrap up. Marie, on that story that Johnson reportedly tried to hire his then mistress as his chief of staff while he was foreign secretary. The story was written by veteran lobby journalist Simon Walters. It appeared on page five on some early print editions of Saturday's Times and was dropped in later editions. The article was never published on the Times website. It also appeared in the mail and was syndicated to foreign websites like MSN and disappeared from all of those. What is going on? Well, as it happens, The Guardian has actually just confirmed that um, Downing Street has confirmed, that has owned up, I suppose, uh, to having contacted The Times on Friday night and asked to retract the story. Um, and clearly the Times said yes, because then the story disappeared, which, again, is one of those where I don't I don't actually have anything insightful to offer here because my only reaction is, what the fuck? I mean, on the one hand, obviously, you know, it, it's mental that Downing Street decided to try and lean on a newspaper to try to get them to retract the story before it was I published. I mean, Streisand effect, hello. It is, but also, you know, it, it is quite common for, you know, special advisors or whoever to convince papers not to print a story in ways that are sometimes, you know, kind of very bad, sometimes less bad, etc. But the fact that the story was published and then they asked to retract it, I, I, I find that, you know, doubtless there'll be more uh, coming out on this soon, hopefully, because just baffling with the fact that the Times did it as well. Uh, yeah. it, again, nothing else to add. Just what? what? From, a, from a position of a media lawyer, which is what I do with my day job, is that it's extraordinary because the story was... Once you have a decision to publish a story, that means they somebody thinks it stands up. So, and the only reason to pull it is either it journalistically doesn't stand up anymore, but the journalist says it still stands up, or some legal thing has happened, which creates legal risk, but there's nothing in this which wasn't published in Ashcroft's book. No, so no. whatever the reason for it to being pulled, it isn't journalistic and it ain't legal. Yeah. Finally, to wrap up this section, Justin, we've got two by-elections happening on Thursday. One because a Tory MP was convicted of sexually assaulting a 15-year-old boy. The other because a Tory MP couldn't stop watching porn in the actual Commons chamber. Let's remind listeners of that. So we have in the Devon seat of Tiverton and Honiton, the Lib Dems are trying to overturn a Conservative majority of over 24,000. Remarkable in itself. In Wakefield, Labour looks set to 
regain a red wall seat, despite the conservative candidate Nassim Ahmed's valiant angle that voters can still trust the Tories because, and I quote, we still trust GPs after Harold Shipman killed hundreds of people. That's what, that's the actual quote. Um, which of these potential losses would worry Tory strategists, strategists more? And do you think they're both going to go against them? Um, I mean, that really is a comms masterclass with my my branding, with my ad agency head on. I am. I can only. I can only. Doff We're not my as hat. bad as Harold Chipman. <laughs> I'm going to use that as a slogan for a brand. As a tiny point, quick note as well to so the journalist who did the story as a friend, and who confirmed that it, it is very much the guy who brought it up. It's not even a case of the journalist. You know, the guy brought it up himself, which he wasn't I love. Tricked him. Nope. That's even more beautiful. It's like what? And, and, and we're the bad guys here. What? <laughs> um, I think uh, my guts would be that I think they're both going to go. I think Wakefield, they'll be able to write off as a kind of reversion to the norm. Um, Tiverton, I think we've talked about it. It's been such a long run up to this. I think we're slightly losing sight of how enormous that will be if it goes. I mean, I think if I'm correct, that will be the biggest majority ever overturned to by election in this country. Mm. Um, completely anecdotally, I've got uh, a friend of mine's got parents down there. They are lifelong Tory voting, mail reading, Brexit voting, and they are voting Lib Dem for the first time and said that every farmer they know has a Lib Dem board up in their yard. Um, and he said there is a real genuine visceral hostility towards the incumbent there. So, um, yeah, my hunch about, I think Tiverton... I would think it's possibly going to go, but then also, I also don't see what a good result is for the Tories there, because even if they cling on with an enormously reduced majority, it's like, you know, a leading premiership team just squeaking away from relegation. It's not a good result. Now, is Britain heading for a summer of travel chaos? This week sees one of the UK's most widespread industrial actions in decades as thousands of rail workers strike over pay conditions and threatened redundancies. Members of the RMT, the Rail, Maritime and Transport Union, are walking out on Network Rail and 13 train companies with services reduced by around 80%. As well as trouble on the railways, UK airlines are also facing a combination of strike action and have been told by Grant Sharps to cancel flights they can't deliver this summer having told them to schedule the flights or they would lose the slots, um, to stop a rerun of the chaos scene in airports in May. David, um, the RMT walkout is set to play havoc with people's travel plans, including 200,000 people going to Glastonbury and students sitting their GCSE exams. Is increased disruption a good thing for flexing workers' muscle or does losing public support is losing public support a double-edged sword. It always seems to me like a difficult tightrope to walk. Well, I think uh, from the public's point of view, any public sector union going on strike is, is, is always going to cause immense, immense inconvenience. But the problem is the government seems to be wanting to create this division. And wants the strike to go ahead, almost for the same reasons we've discussed with other things we've been hmm. looking at, like the other wedge, wedge issues. And so the public aren't going to be that sympathetic to, 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 to the government on this. I think the government sees this as, a, as, as an easy win. Let's blame the unions. Ergo, we can blame Labour. People will 
uh, go against the opposition for these strikes. I think the government may find that people aren't going to be misled in that way and that people are actually going to look to the government as as the cause of the problems here. Mm. So what what Justin was saying, there's a risk that basically people look at the mess, look at the people in charge and just say, it's your job to sort it. You know, it's just like that comment in, during Watergate, you know, these people are not clever and things get out of hand. And this is what happens mm. with this government. They try these things which they think are clever, but it keeps on getting out of hand. And and hopefully at some point people will see that, that the government is just trying to bewitch them. I mean, on, on that, Marie, the Tories have... <laughs> I mean, it, I can't read it out without... Love. They've launched a petition titled Stop Labour's Strikes. Um, who are they petitioning? They are the government. <laughs> so I to did, whom is this petition addressed? I really enjoyed uh, the tweet saying that they're now clearly so certain they're going to lose the next election, they're practising being the opposition. <laughs> you said um, it was West Streeting that came up with that. Was that oh, yeah, no, that was quite in. good. Uh, I'm not, I mean, I'm going to be cynical and assume that basically they're just trying to gather data on Conservative voters. So whoever signs that, you know, can can then because I'm guessing it's one of those where you click and then you give a few details about you and your email address and stuff and then you consent to receiving more emails. I genuinely think is just that. I mean, of course, it looks incredibly silly. I love your cynicism. Um, but... It just made me <laughs> smile from ear to ear. <laughs> <laughs> um, Labour have been treading a, an awkward middle ground on this issue <laughs> since so many, um, wanting to avoid action, but also saying they're on the side of the workers. How is this playing out? Are they managing it or are they just making everyone angry? No, they've shot themselves in the dick again. Um, sorry, that, that, that was a no, no, frustrating, right. like, yeah. Um, I, no, I'm not sure how someone can shoot themselves in the dick twice. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should ask, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. So what was it, the story that made me, yeah, seem slightly hysterical? Was it, you know, West treating, saying that he was kind of, yeah, same on the side of the workers and kind of supporting the strike. And then apparently got a bollocking from someone in, in Lotto. And it's been like, I'm sorry. And I'm not, you know, I'm really not a trot. But if West Reading is too left-wing for you, then what kind of <laughs> Labour Party are you running? And I like Wes as well, but he's clearly someone who is very much on the centre of the yeah. Labour Party. And also it's a bit like we had five years, you know, to quote Ed Miliband's words, which are still rattling around my head seven years on or how, how much time it's been, you know, these strikes are wrong at a time when negotiations are still ongoing. Like, you remember that horrible yeah, interview yeah. he did where he just said that again and again? And the fact that the Labour Party has still not managed to come up with some form of way of dealing with strikes. Again, the clues in the name is the Labour Party. So even fine, if you don't want to support a strike, you have to have quite a strong line. If you want to support them, you have to have quite a strong line. And I, I just find it endlessly frustrating that we're doing this again. Also, I have to tell you, I saw that entire West Streeting um discussion with the mm. Institute for Government for work. And it's not what he said. Mm. Um, so he said, if I were the government, I would want to stop the strikes. Mm. If I were a rail worker, I would be voting for them. Yeah, and then um, he sang the Internationale. <laughs> <laughs> Dressed as Rosa Luxembourg. <laughs> um, Justin, 
Throughout the pandemic, when key industries have been subsidized to the tune of billions, and now with energy companies facing a windfall tax and rail companies facing strikes, very few people are discussing discussing nationalization. Why is that, do you think? I mean, it, the, the conditions seem ideal for someone to say, this is what happens when all this stuff is private. I mean, I again, with my sort of day job head on from... Ad agencies, it sort of feels almost like it's it's a branding issue. In that, you know, I feel I feel that we've got this sort of residual hostility in this country just to nationalisation as an idea. Right. In a way that, even if people don't, we put, don't though, especially on railways. It's it's actually a really popular but, but, idea. But as a well, again, it's this thing of when individual policies are tested, right, yeah, they right, do well. Right. But I think the you sort of feel like if if it could be rebranded as something like, I don't know, consolidation or something, when you think, actually, what you're talking about is just, you know, bring all these services back together under one banner. Because, mm. you know, and there are things which work much, you know, there are things which work much better in transport now once they were diverged. But the problem is when you turn it into a competitive market like that, all the best operators flock towards the same bit of the market and want the most profitable bits and the, the low-hanging fruit. Mm. So I feel like you could... If you were, as a Labour Party, going to try and bring the nationalisation discussion back on, I would just avoid that word. Because I think even maybe just to even, even if it's only to older voters, you know, they are crucially important. They swing the balance in elections. It probably does still have that woo 70s bogeyman feel maybe to it. Maybe we could so, call it privatisation zero. Yeah, or country privatisation. <laughs> um, Reverse you know. <laughs> but guys, what is it about the government which makes you think that people would welcome it being put in the government's hands? This is a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> this is a fair point. I, I was thinking more uh, being offered as a policy by opposition. Um, David, a lot of people are now much more accustomed to working from home. Is this mm-hmm. strike also a bit of a gamble for the unions? That the, What happens if the country discovers that post-pandemic it can function nearly perfectly well without noticing um, the trains being out a couple of days a week. Well, I, I'm, I'm incredibly biased because I'm, I'm self-employed both as a lawyer and as a journalist. I, working from home suits me perfectly. And in fact, it, it, it can even do podcasts remotely like this. And it's, uh-huh. it, it's so flexible and people, a lot of people, will find it far easier to just go back into working from home. And so in a way... You know, things have moved on. People don't like the commutes. A lot of people I know can't even imagine what they used to do during that commute. So used to they actually allocating that time to other things during the day, that time between seven mm-hmm. and eight and between six and seven and whatever. So, yes, there is, there is a change. But on the other hand, the, the railways do need massive investment, even if people are going to be working from home. And so we still need to have a proper net transport system in this country, which in many ways we still haven't got properly. But yes, a lot of people like me are perfectly happy working from home and quite horrified of the prospect of having having to commute again on a regular basis. Um, okay, one sentence from each of you. What are your main summer holiday plans and what percentage of them going ahead do you right now attach to them? Marie? Oh, uh, I am basically just going to spend a lot of my summer in France and Morocco. I, I do hope I make it to my cousin's wedding. That would be quite nice. I do nice. hope is not a percentage. 
I d- no, hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm just backing myself. Fine, Yay, I'll swim. I mean, my mum will make me swim if I don't take the plane. So uh, I'm going nowhere. Like anyone sensible, I'm waiting till September when it's cheaper and there's no families with kids. In it though, oh, yeah. in it though, staycation is the way. David, I'm going to learn how to ride a horse. Okay, that's not a destination as such. Well, hopefully, so. you can go anywhere once you're on the horse. <laughs> exactly. And so you're going. You're going to your next holiday. On a horse. Yeah, I, I, rather than actually going to a place, I just want to do a thing I've not done before. And coming from Birmingham, I've not come across many horses in my life. And I just thought it would be quite a nice thing to do is to learn how to ride a horse. I will steal David's horse and ride it to Morocco. <laughs> that is my holiday plan. Very good. Finally, after 27 years, Microsoft has announced it is retiring the consumer version of Internet Explorer, first on Windows in 1995. This is nothing short of extraordinary, considering that by 2004 it had cornered 95% of the browser market and there was a series of legal antitrust cases about other browsers finding it impossible to even break into it. Well, in the years since, it has lost out almost all of its market to Google Chrome, Apple Safari and Mozilla Firefox. Justin, for many of us, Internet Explorer was synonymous with our first online experiences. What are your earliest memories of the world wide web that can be broadcast pre-watershed? Well, mine, and uh, this will bring a shiver of recognition to all people who started in the press around my time, was... When it was originally, I still remember the crossover point where there was so little information available on it that your quicker alternative was a service called Tassiemka, which was a cuttings library up in North London, (laughs) where you would submit a series of search terms to them, like a very slow analogue human Google, go up there 24 hours later in this giant double-fronted house, I think in Manor House up in very North London, run by these two very, very old women. And this house was just full to the rafters with newspapers, filing cabinets, and they would give you a giant jiffy bag full of photocopy cuttings relating to all the search terms you'd given them. And they eventually, you know, went out of business. Amazing. And they, uh, but they, that was your... Nowadays, analog. you'd be a, a Channel 5 documentary. Well, they, <laughs> Hoarders. I, I mean, <laughs> there were serious hoarding tendencies. <laughs> but they, yeah, it was an amazing service. But that was, I still remember, just remember the crossover period where it was easier and quicker to do that than to trawl through, you know, endless, unindexed, sort of partially archived news services. And that's, uh, yeah, Viva Tassiemka. I remember during my law degree... Um, a Lexus Nexus yeah. um, launched, and so suddenly you didn't have to go to the actual books, the Shame. actual journals Shame. reporting. Shame. <laughs> Be quiet, man! Shame. I went to an urban red brick university. Um, And it was an amazing thing to just be able to log from home, log on from home, and look up precedent like from your home computer. It was extraordinary. Um, David, what do you remember about Internet Explorer and early internet browsing in general? What's your fond memory or dramatic one? My back's got lighter because because of of my sort of interest in, in, in nonfiction stuff. I used to actually carry a pair cyclopedia and an atlas around in my bag with me just so I could sit down and 
uh, have have information that's available. That's amazing. No, that's insane. What? No, that is amazing. I want to know that, David. I want to meet that geek. And I used to get uh, yeah, and I, I used to sit there trying to connect all the information in the book with each other. And the first thing I noticed about Internet Explorer and, and was the use of hyperlinks. And that's why I became a blogger, is the whole idea of you could actually put something on the screen. And if you didn't believe what you read, you could click onto it to see what the authority was. And my mind was already wired in that direction. Well, that's worked anyway. out well, hasn't it? <laughs> it, it true, but um, for a lot of people, about 10, 15 years ago, we were very hopeful about the internet being a great device for verifying false claims. Well, I know. It, that hasn't quite worked out. It's gone the opposite way. But yeah. I, what I liked about the, the, the internet to begin with was how you could go from claim to source so quickly. And and that is still what I like about the internet. And that's one of the things which, you know, for example, legal blogging and science blogging and good online writing about other subjects is that what you read is only one step. You can then go on to actually dig into it if you want. And I think that might last. I think... Yes, there's a lot of awful stuff on the internet, but that is a great thing, and that will persevere. Hmm. No, Murray, very exciting. You've got a new book coming out in September called Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Um, you were born in 1991 when the internet was created. I'm reading this information with a, a rictus green on, grin on my face. It's obscene, really, that anyone was <laughs> born in 1991. Um, how heavily does Internet Explorer feature in your... So, sadly, it doesn't feature massively. I mean, a lot of the early internet in general is there, but early-ish, I suppose. Um, no, I think MSN Messenger is probably, like, the big thing from that era. Right, right. Um, but, no, I think, yeah, quite a lot of, like, illegal downloading of songs and movies, that all of which somehow turned out to be porn. Like, I feel like generally my early teenage <laughs> years were generally not watching porn, like, because I wanted to, but because each movie I downloaded was that, oh, somehow it's porn again. <laughs> like, literally, just, I would say 80% of it was porn. But, you know, but it... Oh, it's shaving Ryan's privates. <laughs> I downloaded the wrong thing again. <laughs> again. <laughs> How do you feel that the internet... I mean, as the member of the panel that's really grown up with it, um, how do you feel it's grown up with you and you've grown up with it, as it were? Will you be forever at complete ease with it? Or are there things that now make you think, God, the young'uns, um, they're onto that and I don't really get it? Oh, no, no, absolutely. The last one, I think that's why, because um, obviously I, I call my generation so like roughly worn between 85 and 95, the first generation that properly grew up online, which I know a few people ironically online said, oh, actually, you know, I'm older than that. And, you know, our generation was the one who really grew up online. But I think that we were the last generation to have the option. So we grew up online, but, you know, we... Um, we did it because we wanted to, in the, whereas I think that people who were born even sort of, you know, 10 years after us are kind of in um, the early 2000s, for example. You know, the Internet was basically fully formed um, mm -hmm. by the time they were even born, by the time they could, you know, touch the screen. The Internet also kind of had the shape that it has now. Because yeah. when I think back again, you know, I remember like Internet Explorer, dodgy, yeah, downloading of stuff. Um, you know, MySpace, yeah. fa like, early Facebook, Blogspot, etc., etc., etc. Um, but then it changed, you know, like, I, I remember basically the days when there kept being new websites we'd flock to mm. every couple of years. So, you know, it was Tumblr, it was, yeah, again, 
like Facebook, That's it was MySpace, true. it was Instagram, it was yeah Twitter, and so on. Whereas now the internet has kind of been stuck. I think apart from TikTok, I suppose, but it has been stuck. Um, in the same shape for about a decade, really. And I think that's quite a big change uh, between, uh, yeah, I suppose, generations, where if all you've ever known is an internet that's actually quite always the same, then by definition... It's quite weird, isn't it? There was a time when you could search a particular thing and go, so I've read the internet on that. (laughs) (laughs) Or four results. I've read what the internet had to say on Mm. that, and that will never come again. So to all the panel, again, one-sentence answers. Was there anything that made early internet browsing more fun than today's online world? What feature... Would you wave a magic wand and make return? Justin. Uh, LimeWire, which was probably my first window into, my God, there is so much hooky bootleg music out there. And you can just <laughs> scrape it all down. And that's all now been lost because it's, you know, subsequent versions of iTunes wouldn't play it and it's not on Spotify. So somewhere there are hard drives mouldering away full of insane old mixtapes and bootlegs and things. But they're, they are gone. Wonderful. How about you, David? I miss the curated menu lists, which early Yahoo had, where somebody actually structured what was available on the internet in in, in a sequence of menus where you could actually click, 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 click and carry on narrowing down until you actually found about three or four websites and what you really wanted. I actually miss that. A sort of index. Yeah. Uh, the, The sort of Google search and the stuff which comes up for on their algorithm doesn't do quite the same but obviously that's not mm. practical now but i did like the early yahoo how they curated the menu lists for you how about you mary i really miss blogs i i used to spend all my time reading blogs and i don't really know what to do on the internet anymore like, and, 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 I, and i like that you know it was such a weird well, range there's still again, blogs out there aren't oh, i still what blog mary <laughs> Oh, sorry. But no, so what, what I meant is, you know, the, the fact there was so many, you know, like I, I read so many different blogs of, you know, like just, for example, like random people talking about their random normal lives, but in quite a fun way. There were like, you know, sort of like sex blogs from like party girls, again, political stuff, etc. Like, there were just so many. So I remember, you know, every day I'd come from school or whatever and just read all my blogs and just see, you know, who had posted that day. And again, and it could be such a weird mix of things. And no one, and again, I mean, I get into that a lot in the book, but um, no one was really expecting to get famous or rich for it. It's just people who were oversharing for the love of oversharing. Um, <laughs> and that was a delight. I miss early chat rooms. Mm. Was it IIRC, IRC, something like that, where you could basically join a a, a chat room with a general topic, let's say Star Wars. You joined the Star Wars chat room. And then you would post on there, does anyone want to talk specifically about Ewoks? <laughs> and then people would pop up and you'd start a private chat room just to talk about Ewoks. They were brilliant. So there you go. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's time for the panel's escape routes. What are the books, films or TV shows that have given our panellists a break from the bruising world of politics? Marie. Uh, I just finished a video game called Steam World Dick 2, which is great because it's really cheap. I think I bought it for a tenner. Um, and just quite fun. It's really a platforming game, but because you're, you're digging through tunnels and through uh, mm-hmm. mines, etc. So the... It's quite a simple idea, but quite a fun one because it's a platforming game, but you basically build your own platforms by digging around in the oh, ground. Right, right, right. Really fun, really fun. You collect things, you know, you beat little bugs in the mines. Just really nice and really fun, sort of like brain soothing kind of game. That's yeah. what I recommend. 
I, I like that. I'm playing a thing called Cook Mania at the moment, which is, it starts as that, and then it becomes like a horrible battle to pass a level that you cannot pass and you cannot possibly pass unless you pay for extras, which is oh. just really annoying. Justin, how about you? Uh, I'm halfway through Sam Knight's new book, The Premonition Bureau, mm. which is absolutely fantastic. It's a very sort of literary retelling of a true story. It starts in the 60s uh, around the Aberfan mining disaster and the science correspondent from the Evening Standard who had collected a significant number of reports from readers who had had a premonition of a very precise premonition of the disaster, and he then set up within the Evening Standard the Premonition Bureau, um, and to see that if sounds that, amazing. It's incredible. So the idea was that if there were enough of these people in the country, rather than just recording what had happened and they'd seen retrospectively, they could effectively be used as an early warning system for disasters that were going to befall the country, and it then goes off in a very discursive trek through the asylum system in the, the uh, lunatic asylum as then were referred to the mm. system in the country secure accommodations mediums psychics the sort of wreckage of world war Two that had come through and it's it reminds me most of all of uh, nicholas rogue's don't look now in that it's got that genuinely palpably creepy feel not mm. because things are jumping out on you but because you genuinely don't know if something is going on under the surface or not. It's, uh, it's brilliantly written. covers a lot of ground, but it's done a really, really good job. So that's the Premonition Bureau by Sam Knight. Lovely. Sounds great. What about you, David? Is there something that you're occupying your time with? Happily sitting in Animal Crossing, talking to a penguin over coffee and going around a museum with an owl. That perfectly sums up my day at the end of the day. Oh, my goodness. My other half loves Animal Crossing, and I get endless nudges to look at the latest fish that he's managed to fish <laughs> and donate it to a museum. Oh, um, and they so say romance is dead. In, I, in I, it, I just love the idea that David's avatar self is carrying a giant pears encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> Animal Crossing is precisely the sort of game that can allow this, actually. Yeah, the, the actual house is decorated with lots of virtual bookcases. Whilst I sit there on the sofa looking at all my other bookcases, which I think is really quite uh, sad in its way. Uh, Brilliant. But the thing about Animal Crossing, which is really quite suspect, is that you've got this wonderful greenfield island and you get more and more points the more you clutter and destroy it and, and o o overfish it. But uh, Well, there you go. There's a lesson there. Um, my escape route is a series called From, about a town in the middle of quite literally nowhere, um, as in you cannot get there if you want or get out if you want. It chooses you and you end up there in this purgatory. Oh, and did I mention it's surrounded by ghost vampire werewolves that hunt you at night? Um, so, again, the name of that is From. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Justin Quirk. Thank you very much, Alex. To Marie Leconte. Thank you. And to our special guest, David Allen Green. To our bit. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. This week, we want to give a shout-out to some backers who have been with us since the very beginning. Hello from me, and many thanks to Tanya Jane Park... Andrew Duran and David Martin. Many thanks from me to Edward Potter, Sarah Vaughan and Gabby. And finally, best wishes from me to Andrew Morgan, Mark Adamson and Ben Reeves. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. 
The Bunker was presented by Alex Andrade, with Marie Leconte and Justin Quirk. The producers are Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofredevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. And the Bunker theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.